Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get your free audio book download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash necessary blackness. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from. You can access it from your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I would like to give thanks to the ancestors, known and unknown, those who have paved the way for us to survive this moment of time and to have a reference point to use as a blueprint to deal with these hellish times we are living in. I would also like to give honor and reverence to the woman of the universe for your superior work, for bringing forth the spiritual information through the triple stage of darkness of your womb and giving birth to God. We would like to give reverence to the universe and praises to the indigenous. My name is Raheem Shabazz, and this is Necessary Blackness Podcast. Necessary Blackness Podcast, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. with award-winning journalist and filmmaker Raheem Shabazz. This podcast is only for those who are unapologetic. Because the mind of the conscious man or woman recognize no monopoly on truth. Truth is relative and always to be sought. Yo, check out the award-winning docuseries Elementary Genocide. This docuseries provides a critical expose of mass incarceration, the war on drugs, and the connection between slavery, capitalism, and the prison industrial complex. This docuseries features Dr. Umar Johnson, Dr. Boyce Watkins, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, Killer Mike, David Banner, Professor James Small, Kaba Kamene, and so many other people. Check out Elementary Genocide, the school to prison pipeline, Elementary Genocide 2, the Board of Education versus the Board of Incarceration, and the latest installment. Elementary Genocide 3, The Academic Holocaust. It's all available now at elementarygenocide.com. Tune in for the drop. I am Dr. Kira Taylor, and when I'm tired of listening to fake news, I will listen to some real news, and I will check into the Necessary Blackness podcast with my friend Raheem Shabazz. Raheem Shabazz is one of my guys from way back, and you're now listening to his show, Necessary Blackness Podcast. Stay tuned. This is a cool up cultivated roots media, and I choose to tune into Necessary Blackness because staying connected to my blackness is very necessary. Yo, that's what I'm talking about, man. You'll hear it here first. <laughs> now, our feature presentation. Peace and Black Power family, this is your host, Raheem Shabazz, and this is another episode of Necessary Blackness Podcast, and today we have a special guest with us, and he is the creator of Black, White, and Blue. He's a screenwriter, a TV consultant, and his name is Curtis Schoon. And Curtis is a noted filmmaker as well as an author. And in 2003, he wrote Fame and Defame for Playboy magazine, which led to the must-read book, Queen's Reign Supreme, Fat Cat, 50 Cent, and the Rise of Hip-Hop Hustlers that received rave reviews by Publisher Weekly. He also has been a film consultant for BET, America's Gangster Series, episode on Fat Cat, and Kenneth Supreme McGriff. And recently, he was on a podcast called Brooklyn Combined, 
The brother is here. How you doing, Curtis? I'm doing good, Ryan. Thank you for having me, man. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. It's always a pleasure to interview those that are speaking for the voiceless through documentary filmmaking. And as a documentary filmmaker myself, I always have the pleasure and opportunity to extend my platform to other people. So I just seen your documentary, and um, I must say it is definitely a documentary that will resonate in this day and in this time because of the subject matter. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a few questions, and um, we're going to have this conversation. Now, Black, White, and Blue, it examines the role that the police violence and race played in the 2016 presidential election, and um, it explores the real agenda behind the Black Lives Movement and how, you know, many are perceiving them to be hijacking the movement to replace it with the LBGT agenda. In addition to that, it also talks about the water crisis in Flint and so much more dealing with police brutality and everything that's happening with us in Black America. Why those issues And what do you hope people walking away with after viewing your documentary will get? Well, let me start by saying I was motivated to make the film off of things I saw on social media. And I think a lot of issues that are being presented as authentically black issues aren't really representative of things that I consider most important to the black community and not really black per se at all. And I also found that the people um, promoting these views were very belligerent on social media. They would attack you if they disagreed with you, if you didn't toe the line with them. And this kind of troubled me because these people were young. I think they're called millennials or something. And I wanted to bring the focus back to what I feel is important to the black community. And through the film, I try to re-educate and remind people of what our journey was and what the issues are. Because the things that we talk about in 2016 and 2018 seem to be so far away from what, what the historic issues were. And I don't think a lot of people know things. I think their, their knowledge of history might go back 10 years mm. or, or five years. Mm. So I wanted, I wanted to do a refresher. And, and Black, White, and Blues is more than police issues. The flag is red, white, and blue. Mm -hmm. But black and white seems to be this constant topic in America. So I changed it and made it representative of all of that. Yeah, and I've definitely seen that because your documentary, it doesn't give allegiance to no political party. There's no political agenda. And it, it gives a critical view that you don't just cater to one side. It, it presents both sides of the arguments, and I find that real intriguing. I've seen several uh, documentaries that um, are critical to our needs, but those documentaries are not made by us. And I and I want to talk mm-hmm. to you about that subject matter as well. Oh, because I, we're going to talk about that for sure. All right, <laughs> I follow you on Twitter. And Mm -hmm. you had Twitter on fire, and that Twitter thread is monumental. 
And it might go down in history as the best thread ever when we're talking about documentary filmmaking because I consider myself um, a historian, a a documentarian, a connoisseur for uh, black film. And there was some things in there, brother, that you were saying. I was like, whoa, 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 hold up a minute. Let me start doing my research. Lo and behold, everything you said, brother, was the absolute truth. And yeah, man. I want you to bring that truth to our listeners on Necessary Blackness podcast. I want you to talk about those that make documentaries about our social issues and they are not from our culture and they are profiting off of our pain, our suffering, and our misery. You know, man, it's like you watch every black documentary, uh, whether it be Sandra Bland that's coming on tonight, the 13th, uh, Trayvon Martin, Talise uh, uh, Browder, and the Central Park Five, and there's always this consistent thing of whites who, who for some reason, are entrusted to tell our stories. And, and I don't believe it's because people think we are incapable of telling our stories. I think it's because our stories only have value when they serve someone else's interest. So this is where our pain becomes political currency Mm. for other movements. You know what I mean? Whether it be like, I believe with the Khalid Browder, the closing of Rikers Island is really about multi-billion dollar development deals for Rikers Island because that's the only available land in New York City. You understand? And it's isolated. These things, these are real tragedies. But these people are so, to me, diabolical that in all of our tragedy, they see opportunity for themselves, not to heal us. And it doesn't matter if one or two of us win a a lawsuit from the films that they make, because that, in the grand scheme of things, is not going to help the black community. You understand what I'm saying? So, so my thing is, you could run down the line, go in the Internet Movie Database, the IMDB, for everybody listening, and just put in the name of every black documentary, and you will see something that's very troubling. And not only that, my film is well-received across the board by blacks, whites, liberals, conservatives, everybody. So it's not that there's not an audience for what we can produce, but somebody, some people are making sure that we don't get in. I submitted Black, White, and Blue to 20 film festivals. Not one accepted it. And it's a quality product. Very good. And and Sundance, like I, I said before, Sundance picked up a film called Who Streets? about the Ferguson riots. I've seen that. And that film centered on a fictitious lesbian couple. And you got to ask yourself, why make a film about Ferguson with all the real drama that happened there and make it about a fictitious lesbian couple? Because those are the type of issues that the people who fund these films are concerned with. And I'm not... I'm not... uh, homophobic, anti-LGBT, any of that. I'm pro-black. And my thing is, you can't take our issues to advance the causes of other people. You know, and and the common thing I hear is, well, they're they're black gays. Well, yes, they are. What is the percentage? 
Do, do we let the minority their needs supersede that of the majority? When, and when I talk about black, I'm inclusive of them. When they talk about gay, they're not inclusive of me. You see what I'm saying? When I say black, they are black too. So anything that's positive for black people is positive for them. Yes. It's a universal thing. When they, when they make it all about them, they are excluding the rest of us who don't subscribe to what they subscribe to. So it's no longer a black issue. When I talk about black issues, it's inclusive of everybody black, male, woman, lesbian, gay, straight, whatever. If you're black, you're going to benefit from this. And I think that's how we stay together as a community. When you start letting people come amongst us and fragmenting us because, you know, they dangling things over here and buying your loyalty or whatever, you're undermining black unity. And, and this is why we can't get things done. This is why we can't get our ideas green-lighted or, or any of that. So I bypassed all of that by funding my own film. And that's what we have to so, do. That's what we have to do. We have to fund our own candidates, our own film, our own everything. We have to get back to not begging people, not complaining to people, finding a way, raising the money, and doing what we got to do. Absolutely. And you you said a lot of profound things in there. Um, and definitely with the uh, film that's getting ready to come out, Sandra Bland, um, I did my research after reading your tweet. And um, the two filmmakers, one of them is a former prosecutor in Manhattan. <laughs> so how does he have a vested interest in any type of justice being being delivered? You know, so that's one. And then when we go back to the 13th, right, my documentary, Elementary Genocide, I didn't put my film out until January 16th, 2014. When 13 came out, the day that it, it debuted on Netflix, my phone was off the hook. At least 25 phone calls, text messages, emails, hundreds of them, right? And the number one right. thing everybody said to me was, yo, this documentary reminds me of your documentary. But then what disturbed me was when I seen the individuals that was behind it. You know, the cameraman, the editor, the, the writer <laughs> yeah. was yeah, all people no no that <laughs> don't look like you and I. And this nah. is about... The mass incarceration of particularly black men and black women. If you want to talk about mass incarceration, we got to have people that got skin in the game. And that's not what's happening. But let's go through the numbers, right? Those are two documentaries that we name, and there's much more. What are some of the other documentaries that people might not know about that is not made by us or for us? Well, I, I mean, to me, I'm pretty sure none of them are made by us. Mm. That 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 people are aware of. You see, there's documentaries like yours or, or like mine that will not get the the popular exposure. I mean, I've been fortunate to get mine on Amazon and and other places. Uh, I'm having some success, but anything to me, any project, any individual, anything that's getting unlimited access exposure is kind of question questionable. Because if you're really for black people, and I don't care if it's a film or an individual, you're not going to get access to media and things like that. It's just not going to happen because you have to serve the interests of some dominant party. 
with your mm-hmm. films, with your with your rhetoric on TV or whatever. So anytime I see somebody that's always on television and speaking for black causes, I don't trust them. <laughs> that, that that's just me. And rightfully because so. If they, because if they were really for black causes, they wouldn't get that kind of access and attention, even when they seem to be speaking against the system. Because there's something called controlled opposition. People talk about COINTELPRO a whole lot. But one of the things they don't know about COINTELPRO that it was set up to, one of the main tenets was to prevent a black messiah from rising. And the way to do that was to create a black messiah. Absolutely. One that can be controlled. And we don't have one black messiah. We have so many in different, in sports, in, in, in the ministry, in, 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 in entertainment. And you could always tell them from the line that they told, the, the popular, the line that gets us nowhere, even when it seems like it's against the government and all that. But then you got to look at their works. And we don't look at works. See, and and the thing about the film, the film is a work. What I did was, I did not try to indoctrinate people with my perspectives. I let people talk. I used archival footage. I had real, never-before-seen footage. I went all over the country. Mm. And I captured people, pro and con, and I gave the viewers something to think about. And also, I, even though the film is a black film, I think the reason why a lot of white people are appreciating it is because they're getting an education yeah. about what re- about why some of us are so angry. And they're getting it from a place, excuse me, that's unbiased. Because as you saw in the film, everybody got criticized. Trump, Clinton, you, know, you name it. Obama, everybody took shots. And rightfully so. You, you, you get what I'm saying? Absolutely. So once people, once people understand that you're not taking sides, but you're just really trying to bring certain things to the light, they're more receptive. Because if you give up the impression that you're taking a side, it, their reaction is for them to take a side too. And then there's no dialogue. There's no discourse. But what I did with the film was I made it possible for people to consider the criticism that may apply to them because they were criticisms of everyone. And I think that's the best way to get the ball rolling. Because other than that, it's just going to be people talking about white this, black that, America this, America and Everybody pick their side and nothing happens. <laughs> Things stay the same. But if we don't get the thing moving, we got to start listening to each other. And I think the film, Black, White, and Blue, is a first step in that direction. Getting people... Not just people who look like you to listen, but people on the other side to listen. Because that's how dialogue begins, and that's how change begins. You know, and, and again, not, not not to keep going on, but the film got me involved in, in, in politics. Because I interviewed Senator Coleman Young II. His father was the first black mayor of Detroit, was mayor for 20 years. And, and just meeting Coleman... I felt like I had to do something because there's a segment in the film about Detroit, and those numbers are staggering. And I don't know if you've ever been to Detroit. But yeah, I've been there. If you, oh, man. Look. It's heartbreaking. My, my director couldn't believe how, how, how tore up the city was. 
You know what I mean? Just to abandon houses, schools, every the city can accommodate two million people, and there's about six hundred and change in there. So it's like two thirds empty. And the Chinese and, and, is buying up what property they can right now. So Detroit is yeah. no longer going to be a black town. Well, yo, listen. They, they, they. A lot of people are buying stuff up, but if you don't have the long pockets to wait for it to turn around, downtown is doing good, but it's 140 square miles in. It's a, it's a lot of. It's gonna take a long time for all of that to get right. But, but anyway, but back to what I was saying is like, I saw so, so much despair that I, I actually got involved with Coleman trying to to run for mayor. He was running against a white candidate in an 83% black city. He didn't have the money, but he had the numbers and the legacy and the brand. The The white mayor raised $2.5 million. Coleman raised about 60000 mm, mm, mm. <laughs> the, the head of the NAACP in Detroit endorsed the white mayor and said he's not the white mayor he's the right mayor wow now i'm saying i'm i'm on tv yeah uh, there was a black man i go i cringe he said he he was on tv and said i don't we don't want no more black mayors in detroit <laughs> you know, when when mike duggan got a, elected he was a write-in candidate that means you had to write his name on the ballot to vote for him and he won and there was another mike so it's similar to Duggan, and some of the people were writing in Mike Duggan, the white one. And this is the mindset of black people in a majority. But See, so we can't just sit around and keep talking about the white man, this and the white man, that. It's just like, yo, what's really going on with us that we don't have no faith in each other? Yeah, some people believe the white man ice is colder. And I think, you know, when they did, the uh give the brother a shot. Uh what was his name? Kwame. Yeah, yeah Kwame. Yeah. I learned from your documentary that the water bill is connected to your property tax. And if you behind oh, yeah. in your water bill, it attaches on to your property tax and it rolls over. So just by not paying your water bill, you can lose your property that you already done paid for. That's insane. Yeah, yeah listen, you know. There's a lot of insane stuff going on up there. And, and, and a year later, that that, that mayor, Mike Duggan, got reelected a year ago, and they're ready to get rid of him. They're suing him because they say he doesn't even live in the city now, and people around him are getting indicted for bid rigging, of course. He's been accused of, of you know, looking out for white contractors in the city, from outside the city to come in. And, and, and that's what the black voters wanted. And they, they had a young man who was an elected official for 12 years as a state, state senator and state rep. And because of his blackness, they didn't want him. They wanted somebody. Imagine, and that's not Mike Duggan's fault. I'm not blaming Mike Duggan. Just imagine how damaged psychologically we got to be as a people to get to that, that point right there. And Kilpatrick disappointed them when they voted for him. He called himself the hip-hop mayor. They wanted a guy who wanted to hang in strip clubs and all of that, and, and lo and behold, he wasn't taking care of business. They chose him. <laughs> I'm sure there was other people running. That's who they voted for. That's not a, that's not a black problem. They need to be more educated about who they vote for. You're 100% I, correct. Yo, 
We get but the leadership. Listen. We get the leadership that we vote for. So it's our fault at the end of the day. Joe, look, man. Politics seems to be a, a, um, a popularity contest with most people, but especially us. This is why Hillary Clinton will do the wobble and talk about she got hot sauce in her pocketbook, all kinds of goofy shit like that. And, and we'll be like, yeah, she's all right. You know what I mean? Like, yo, no, she's not all right. Hmm. What, what, <laughs> what does she stand for? Do you know? You know what I mean? So we got to be more educated. I got to, I got to. I got a crash course in politics dealing with Coleman. Um, and, and what I found is that, you know, we got we to gotta raise money and we got to elect our own candidates before the campaign. We got to designate somebody, be like, listen, we want somebody to run. Things are bad around here. We think you're the right one and we'll do whatever it takes to get you in office. But we're going to send you there with a mission and hold you accountable to it. It has to happen before election day. You know, that's what they you did see? with Kwame. But, you know, once he got in there, he got a taste of power. He pivoted and went the other way. But Kwame, you know, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to talk too much about Kwame, but his mom is in politics. And his mom is friends with Hillary. Kwame was really part of a machine and a machine that doesn't serve the interests of black people. Kwame is responsible for Dan Gilbert being in Detroit, owning over 100 properties downtown alone right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know what I mean? Again, it's deeper than that. Kwame, his mom, I was told, was supporting Hillary because she was hoping Hillary would pardon him if she had got elected. He's part of the problem. And I bet you Dan won't even pay his uh, legal fees right now. But when you're talking about politicians that are part of this machine, you know, the other day I I witnessed uh, Andrew Gillum, right, out out of Florida. And... I'm like yourself. I'm just getting into politics. My first taste of politics was uh, 2008, voting for Barack Obama. Didn't vote the second time because I felt, you know, he didn't do what he said he was going to do. So, you know, I I, I watch it. I watch it from afar. But uh, with Andrew, right, I was saying, all right, this guy, he sounds like he's about to make change. And, you know, he seems like he's pretty good. I hope that the people in Florida, they actually vote for this brother. Man, I seen that tweet where he was, you know, offering his condolence. Oh, Excuse me? You saw the tweet where he was with the picture of him on the boat with the other dude? Oh, no, 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 no. I ain't see that oh. one yet. No, I seen the one where him... No, it was a tweet where he was offering his condolence to uh, George Bush. Bush. Yeah. And he was mm-hmm. talking about how he was a decorated uh, citizen, um on the field when he was in the army and as president. And I'm saying, yo, this dude was a war criminal. Like he brought drugs in the community and decimated the black community under his leadership. And it's almost like, yo, you got black politicians that ain't even elected to office, to a higher ranking office in that loss and still licking boots. 
I'm like, yo, this is insane. But it's politics as usual, and this is setting him up for when he run in the future. It's like, yo, if you and I get it, you know what I mean? Some people feel like, yo, listen, now ain't the time. You know, the man passed away. If that's your feelings, then don't say nothing at all. But to just lie and say this man was a decorated <laughs> hero and we should be proud of him as a president. And, and the thing about it was, if Bush was president right now, and he was running for that governor seat in Florida, Bush wouldn't endorse him based on his politics, his policy, and the platform that he was pushing. So why are you bootlicking? Why are you scratching where you don't itch at? And this is a shame I, I, for black politicians. Please I'll tell, tell us. You why. I'll tell you why. Because Gillum was supported by several billionaires out of uh, uh, Silicon Valley. You know, he had... He had and when you're dealing with people that got billions of dollars, believe it or not, I don't think they really identify with any political party. They they try to get influence wherever they can get it. You know what I mean? So yeah. if, if he's relying on their money, this is why I said we got to fund our candidates. And I don't know this for a fact that they told him to say this. I'm not saying any of that. He could have just been, you know, feeling like that way. But I believe that any time you rely on anyone for money, you kind of, you know, you kind of got to concede to them some kind of way, man. They don't just give you, nobody's giving you anything for free. So uh, he might have had to do a little tap dance and a song because he knows, just like Coleman found out, if you're trying to get money from the black community, it's not gonna happen. How you gonna run? A, how you gonna run a campaign? You see, I, I'm no big fan of these politicians, but I also understand the game. When Obama ran for office, he he got over a billion dollars he raised. And you ask any black person that's talking about our president, the first black president, yeah, and they got an Obama T-shirt and Obama hat. Ask them how much they donated, though. None of them donated anything. Some of them probably ain't you, even vote for him. Yo, <laughs> none of them donated anything. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making excuses for them, but I understand the game. If it took over a billion dollars to run for office, an office that only pays 400000 a year, what do you think is going on there? Nobody's worried about you. You're not just going to go up there on election day and your one vote and then sit around talking about what about me? Because that's not how it works. It's about the people who paid to put them in office. And you, know, right. and you know, Chloe Anderson always talk about we have to buy our politicians. Yo, and, man, I love Claude, man. Come and, on, yeah, man. And you after we buy our politicians, they got to do exactly what we tell them to do because That's we what, are voting block and then we have to get them out of there. But politics aside, man, let's get back. Cause we can talk about this all day. I want to get back to this film, man, because this, this yeah, is very it. important. And... um. This film is is going to change people's politics. If you're looking at it and you're following the narrative and you want to be on the right side of history, this is going to give you some critical thinking to do that. So I want to talk about um, your film specifically. I want to know as a filmmaker, right, politics mm -hmm. aside, I know that um, you wanted to be objective and tell it from a nonpartisan lens. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that it's important to give the other side a voice when most people, they just want to know the truth? And we're living in an age of 
the microwave where people want to get it fast so they just want the truth and they don't care about the opposition. Why was it important to you to give the other side their viewpoint? Because I maintain that truth is the foundation of everything, even falsehoods. Even in, in falsehood, you, the truth is the foundation. There's truth to every side. Even the Klan speaks some truth. The devil speaks the truth when it's convenient for him. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So my thing is to give everybody an opportunity to say their piece and let the listener and the viewer decide for themselves, listen, you know what? This made a little sense. I don't really like this person, but what they said made made some sense. I believe it was Malcolm who said, I like the truth no matter who tells it. Yeah. You understand? And that and that is that is my position and I believe that should be everyone's position. But instead we're emotional. And if we don't like that person and they say something, they could be telling us something that can help us. But because we're so emotional, we let our emotions supersede our intelligence and we just say, you know what? I don't want to hear nothing that person has to say. And, and there's no growth and development there. So what I wanted to do was give everybody a chance to grow. Mm. Because we, we got, that's what has to happen. Because no matter what you say, no matter what we say about slavery and all that, man, we all over here together, so we got to figure this thing out. And on top of that, the numbers as black people aren't really on our side. So it would help us if some people who are not black truly are not, not. I'm not looking for white guilt. I'm looking for some real understanding. Like, yo, listen, man, do you know what it's like for 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 people to be enslaved for for generations and not be educated, have no knowledge of self, nothing, and then be turned free and say, okay, go ahead, figure it out. And we're only 153 years away from that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. nobody can really fathom. Every people's been enslaved and indentured servants, but no one has been stripped of their identity. Not just for generations, man. Like, yo. And then turn loose. Like, okay, we don't need you no more. You figure it out. I can't imagine the trauma. It must have been scary for the people who were released from slavery in 1865. Like, what do I do now? I don't know anything. I can't read. I can't write. What What do I do? I, I think a lot of people really don't get it. And there's some real graphic photos in that film from from the from penury and, and all of that. How black people were arrested, sent to prison just so they could work for factories and, and companies. And I used to hear the word peon and didn't even know what it meant or where it came from. Mm -hmm. you, you, you understand? And it shows you in the film how we were, we were even after slavery, well into the 20th century, to the 1940s, I believe. Yo, we were subjected to all these different things. That's not making an excuse. I think that on the, on the left, what happens is there's a lot of focus on on the things that happened to us rather than our potential. And on the right, they totally ignore it. When it should be somewhere in the middle, it shouldn't be an overemphasis on it because we don't want it to become a crutch, but there should be some acknowledgement and there should be some acknowledgement that, listen, we need to do something to fix this. Now, what that is, I don't know. But something has to be done to address and help, help build a stronger percentage of people in our community who could at least cover for those that can't really figure it out. 
And right now, it seems like our most elite people have distanced themselves from the masses of our community and joined the other side. It's happening every and, and, day. It's happening every day. Now, let me and ask that's you what this. It like. mm-hmm. Now, there's going to be people that hear this conversation. They're going to hear this podcast, and they're going to wonder when you going to throw your hat the political rig because you, you 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 sound like you you might and you know our people. You know, we looking for that black messiah. We looking for that savior. You know, but now nah, you can you can do and this is the truth, right? You could be more yeah. effective than these handkerchief head Negroes that's masquerading as politicians just by your documentary film, just by putting out content that resonate with the people and that show them the truth. Because I tell the people all the time, my film is more than a documentary. It's a call to action. And you can get yeah. people on the right side of history, whether they black, whether they white. If they want to see social justice serve, then it can be done through documentary filmmaking. So we're going we're gonna to talk a little more about that, about your film. But I want to give people a little background and I want to get a little controversial and I want to find out myself because I know as an independent filmmaker, it's hard navigating Hollywood, especially, you know, dealing with the stardom and the notoriety that comes with that. Um, You recently sued 50 Cent for uh, stealing the concept of power. (laughs) Now, yeah. there's a video of him on The Breakfast Club, and I seen that video in 2014, and he gave you a shout-out. Yeah. Was that for your involvement? I don't know, but he did mention you. And um, when did things go wrong, and what actually happened? I was involved with a, pitching a, um, a series called Dangerous, and um, in 2011 or 2012 or something, a guy who had a copy of the script and wanted to to pitch it, he met with Fifty Cents and and and, and a rapper, Armano, and I didn't I didn't think anything of it. But then when I saw the trailer for for Power, like two years later, the thing that I noticed that was very very specific to what I I did was. There was the white character, I believe. Uh, I forgot Tommy or Tommy, whatever in yeah. Power. Yeah. See, I never watched that episode of Power. I couldn't watch it. I saw the trailer and I called the dude who I had write it, and I was like, "Yo, you seen this trailer?" And so on and so forth. And the reason why it caught my eyes because being aware of the, the the role of race in America, I understood when I when I, when I worked on developing Dangerous the importance of having a white character to get white viewers. And nobody had done that before. And that stood out to me with power. And the fact that 50 met about my project and then his had the same thing. I was like, yo, so I filed a lawsuit. Um, I lost. I sued CBS stars and, and a couple other entities. And, and I lost. But the truth of the matter was, if anybody really, really knows me, they wouldn't be surprised that I made that move. Mm. First of all, I, I like, I'm a giant slayer. You, you understand? I, I like to go to the biggest dude in the room, not the smallest. So that's just my mindset. And I realized that by suing CBS and stars, 50 didn't even really matter to me. It was really them. 
I was trying to leverage them. To me, going at 50 is like, he's not really, he's not, he's nobody for me to beat, man. And I'm not trying to disrespect him, but I don't feel like me and him even on the same level. We're not in the same weight class. And I'm not even talking money and success. I'm talking something else. You know what I mean? So it's like, so I went at them and I figured, worst case scenario, I would send a message that don't steal my shit. Because I will sue you, and I don't care nothing about getting blackballed or blacklisted or any of that. Because a lot of people, their stuff gets stolen, and they don't do anything. Because they they have aspirations of making it in the business, and they don't want to burn bridges. But I'm like a self-made man. Thank God, man. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really rely on anybody for anything. I'm the same here, so I know how it is. I definitely know how it is. Let me ask you a question. Do do you have a personal relationship with him? Because I know both of y'all from Queens. No. Never met him? I met him. 50 is about 11 years younger than me, but he didn't live the life that I lived, though. You know what I mean? So we know a couple of some of the same people, but I mean, to me, and, and, and again, no shots at 50, but he's like a, he's an entertainer and he's, he, he lives in a different world. And to me, he, he's accustomed to being in the room where he's the toughest guy in the room. But to me, the room ain't really tough at all. You know what I mean? So yeah. he can get that. You, you understand what I'm saying? Like he, he, he handles them dudes a certain way because like I said, he's usually the toughest guy in the room on that stage. But that stage ain't my stage. You know what I mean? And that's all I'm going to say about that. If you notice, he's he's never said a bad word about me. Yeah, I did notice said, that. I did notice yeah, that. You know, he's, he's you know, and, and cause he, he understands. Me and him, we're not the same. You know what I mean? We ain't in the same league, the same nothing. He ain't going to say nothing about me. And and he won. I mean, they won. And that's that. And I move on. And if I saw him today, it would be nothing. I shake his hand and keep going, man. You know, I, 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 I tried my hand and it lost. I believe that it was mine. The judge said something different. But again, look who I was going against. I wasn't going against 50. I was going against CBS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> look, <laughs> stars. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a long shot to begin with, you know? Yeah, that's how that goes. Yeah, but the main thing is that, you know, people got to understand we fight not with the aspiration that we win, but we fight because we try to do our injustice. And, you know, you let people know, like, yo, listen, you ain't going to just do this to me and, and ain't nothing going to exactly. happen. Win or lose, you're going to know right. that what you did was wrong. <laughs> And you're going to have to face me at the end of the day, man. So I, I definitely respect you, man. My hat go off to you. And um, I'm here to support you. My platform is here it. for you anytime. I want you to let everybody know where they can get this Riverton film at. And also let us know what's next for Curtis Schoon. Well, uh, Black, White, and Blue is available on Amazon. If you're an Amazon Prime member, you can watch it for free. Um, and it's available on Vimeo On Demand. That's Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O dot com forward slash on demand forward slash black, white, blue or Amazon. And, and also let our people know where they can follow you at on social media. I know his Twitter be off the chain. You on Facebook too? <laughs> no, nah, no. Nah, I only have Twitter because I actually like to write. I'm not really big with the pictures. 
But yeah, Twitter, my name, at Curtis Schoon. Okay. C U R T I S S C O O N. Curtis School. My name, my my picture, my everything. So what's next for Curtis School? Ah man. I, <laughs> so many things, but as far as films, mm-hmm. um as soon as I get this film promoted, I'll try to um I wanna do a film on, on mental health in the black community. I got a, a unique approach to it. Um mental health is really how I make my money. I I own an outpatient mental health facility. Um, I serve about a thousand thousand clients and I got a, a combination of about sixty contractors and, and W two workers employed by me. You know what I mean? And, and that's really what I do. I work in the black community and I I try to help with a lot of the mental health issues. There's a stigma with mental health in the black community, but there's a there's a, a direct correlation between the mental health problems, the poverty, and the crime rate in certain high crime areas. Absolutely. You know, uh, <laughs> and and that's just and that's just real. So I find myself every day, no matter how successful I may think I am, but every day I'm among the people in the highest crime areas of the city that I'm in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that you send a doctor to where the sick are, and that's where I go. All right. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, on Necessary Blackness Podcast. And I am your host, Raheem Shabazz. And we just finished speaking to Curtis Schoon. So in closing, my brother, is there anything that you want to say that I didn't ask you or you just want to leave with the people? I just want to say that... um. I'm for black people. I'm not affiliated with any political party. There's no funding group, think tank, or anything behind me. You know, and um, I believe that we gotta we gotta do what we gotta do to save each other, to save ourselves. Because really, nobody's gonna do it for us, and we shouldn't expect them to. And that's about it. I'm gonna do my part, and y'all gotta do yours too. All right, you heard it. The man is self-funded. So you know what that mean, right? That he doesn't take third-party money from any organization or other entities. So that means us as black people, we have to support him. Because if we don't, they're going to change the narrative. They're going to make films. You're not even going to get a job on that film set. You're not going to have a seat at the table, and you're going to be on the menu. So we got to support independent documentary filmmakers, Go to Amazon, go to Vimeo, get this film. I purchased it myself. I watched it. And if you don't have the money to watch the film, tweet the trailer. Let people know that this film exists. Because I know y'all going to be watching that Sandra Bland. And ain't nothing wrong with it because I'm going to watch it. You know, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to see what the narrative is. But... I'm going to be very mindful that that wasn't made for us. It wasn't intended to bring justice to Sandra Bland's family. And it was made by someone that made their career off of locking people up. But here it is, a gentleman that made a film addressing a social issue that's in the community, that's dealing with individuals that have mental health. And y'all know the statistic of those that are killed by police that has mental health. So we mm-hmm. have to figure out a way where if someone is having an episode that we get them help and we get them counseling and we have people come to them 
when they're having that episode instead of family members calling the police because you know if you call the police, it's going to end up wrong. So I'm going to leave y'all with that, and I'm going to see y'all same place, same time next week. Yeah, what's up? You want to add something? One last thing. I want want the, the listeners to know that the director of the film is a young black woman. Yeah, Asian Norris, right? It's her first film, and I met her in a clothing store, and she told me she was in film school. Like, all I try to do is help my people, because I know nobody was going to give her that shot. And now she has a feature film under her belt. And it was in Sundance. How about that? I got three movies, and I ain't get to Sundance yet. And he just gave her a shot, and she's in Sundance. Ah, man. I might have to call you for my next movie. That's real talk, man. You know? And no, yo, yo, that's a beautiful thing, man. And people need to hear situations like this where they know the possibility is endless, and you don't have to always think or believe that the white man ice is colder. You know, there's brothers out here, man, that can make these pivotal business moves just like anybody else. But it takes us unifying and trusting one another, and those that's in position, we got to give other people the breaks. You yeah. know what I mean? So, yo, yeah. man, that that's definitely what's up, man. So, peace and power, black family. This is Raheem Shabazz, and we are out of here. Persons interested in broadcasting a commercial can reach us via email at necessaryblacknesspodcast at gmail.com. Necessary Blackness is distributed on all major podcast platforms iTunes, Stitcher, iHeart, SoundCloud, Podomatic, and Google Play. We'll also promote your business and products across our various social media networks, reaching over 100,000 people daily.